Roxy Soxy. Well, good afternoon, Tam Tam. Um, the kids are home from school today, so I've been doing a little bit of juggling. Juggling with what work been, and mom. I love how you say the kids. It's like, I have four kids and it's so stressful. <laughs> well, I'm including David in that too. <laughs> oh, okay. Don't you hate it when people like me, because I used to hate it when I had one kid and like, I'd always, someone always be like, well, wait till you have two kids or wait till you have three kids or wait till you have four kids. I'm like, dude, I have one kid and that's effing just as hard as any other kid. And now I have two and I'm like, wait till you have two kids. Like, I hate myself. <laughs> you know what? Okay. Totally get it. And yes, I do. Do you have that reaction? Because <laughs> you know I'm a onesie. But in some ways, I kind of think having one is yeah, super true. tricky because you have to be kind of like the playmate, the parent. You have to like keep that them is occupied, true. right? We can just throw out two in a room and just be like, play together, shut the door. Uh, and I think we have done that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no. I do that all the time with my two. It's just like, ah. Um, and then I'm thinking like, you know, we're on this precipice of like, do we have a third, you know? And I've heard that a third is either the best decision you'll ever make, or it's just a complete nightmare. And people say, I wish I had my life back when I only had two. So I don't know, like my husband's exhausted. He's done. Um, I'm like, well, I've got a little bit of like amnesia when it comes to like the actual birthing process, the first year, hating everything and everyone and postpartum depression and anxiety. I'm like, yeah, that'll be fine. Um, so I don't know. I think next year will be D D D year, meaning like It'll be the last time I'm going to consider it. And then we move on. Oh, <gasps> so it's, that's going to be the end. You're just going to move yeah. on from there. Okay. Yeah. So if it doesn't happen next year, you think it won't happen. The third. Yeah. I mean, we haven't even started trying, but if we try and it yes. doesn't happen, we're done. I mean, and then I'll be like 42 and get pregnant. So <laughs> <laughs> totally. Or like 49, you know, yeah. you're like, might please as well. No. Might as yeah, well be a major, no. major, major oops. <laughs> yeah. Please. No. Um, well, our next guest is not in the birthing category at all, although she kind of is like birthing a future. Yes. See what I did there? Mm-hmm, I like birthing it. a future. <laughs> and last night I, you know, I'm, we have not had a money expert on the show in 120 episodes. Now we've had sex experts and sleeping experts and parenting experts and relationship experts. I'm like, Roxy, we need a money expert. We need to learn how to save our money. Although I think you're pretty good with money. So it'll be interesting to see through this podcast, like how you feel about money and your relationship with money. Yes, because you know, we've been working on this. We've been talking about this on the podcast, all about our manifesting and everything. And I'm now turning into a believer when it comes to money. I'm telling you into a believer, believe, behave, become. Yes, girl, the three B's. You and I yesterday were like nope. manifesting. Mm-hmm. Both of us were like, we're going to make money. We're going to make money. We're going to make money. And both of us yesterday made money. Yeah. We both yeah. woke up with deals. Like it's yeah. weird. And you know me, I'm not woo woo, but I do. It's not woo woo. It's called the universe. <laughs> it's called law of attraction and it's based in science. <laughs> okay, girl, woo woo. She's like, it's so woo woo. I'm like, then everything's woo woo. Then God's woo woo. Then it literally like everything is woo woo. <laughs> well, all I'm saying is I am ready for more woo woo. So yeah, you're ready for more money. So we have a millennial money expert, which is exactly what we need on this show. Tanya Rapley. I am so freaking excited to talk to her and she's going to make us save and make more money. So Yay! welcome, Tanya. <laughs> Tanya. <laughs> I hope so. Those are good <laughs> promises. Pressure. Yes. Yeah, like just a little. Lots, lots of pressure. Well, we are so excited to have you here on yes. the show. Yes. yes. So we have so many money questions. I feel like we should just like dive right in. Do it. Right. Um, so I know you speak to a broad, you know, audience, but a lot of your listeners and your audience is female, much like ours. Mm -hmm. So I I think the whole relationship with women and money is so interesting, Mm -hmm. you know, because Mm -hmm. I think we as women are taught, okay, if you go for money or you use that as your goal, or you really go after it, you're considered greedy, or Mm -hmm. you should just be like a little more standoffish when it comes to money. You shouldn't step into your power and make your deals and demand money. So can you speak to that? Like, like women's relationships with money, how do we better our relationship? Right. Well, I think first off, we have to throw that whole like women and money don't get along belief out the window. We are managing money and experiencing and making money very differently than like our grandparents and even some of our mothers. Like 
I know so many women who are just badasses at like making money mm-hmm. and doing amazing things. So we have to like realize that things are different. Um, women are leading a lot of households. Women are becoming breadwinners. And with that comes, I think, a different responsibility. So it comes in, like we talk about, you, we're speaking about law of attraction and everything mm-hmm. else. So it comes into like, okay, what do you really want? Do you want to be like financially independent where it doesn't matter who your partner is, you're going to be okay and secure financially? Because if you do, that's okay. And what do we do to get you there? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that's really important for women to recognize. We always say as a financial educator, you know, you have to assess where you are and where you want to be. And I think declaring what you want for yourself financially is that first step to be like, you know what, this is what I saw growing up, but this isn't what I want for myself. And it's okay that I don't want that and nothing's wrong with them. I just want to do something completely different because that's what I want for myself. Mm -hmm. I think that sometimes we feel guilty about not wanting to, especially as women, about not wanting to play into a narrative that our parents or our grandparents have established for us and say like, no, that doesn't work for me. I'm good. I want to do something different. So I, at first, I think women need to give themselves permission for that if they haven't already. Um, but I'm also mindful of like women are giving themselves permission. Like they don't need it from me. Mm-hmm. They're doing it. So um, I think that is like the first step in really working on your relationship with money. It's just getting clear on how you want it to operate within your life. Mm. You know, I was a child actor, so I made money really young and my parents were good about it. They definitely saved my money and I was able to buy property when I was 18 years old, which isn't, you know, everyone's experience, obviously. But then kind of as I grew into my 20s, I then had my own responsibility with my own money. My parents were obviously there in the background that would help me out. But I just spent so much in my 20s, whether it was vacations or the next, you know, I even bought like like Dolce shoes and handbags because like, you know, you see other people and it's all about like having things you don't need to impress people that you don't even think you like. (laughs) And I wasted, I think like, so what, what do you tell people who are in their 20s that Mm -hmm. some some strategies that they can have about saving money because you don't think about that when you're in your twenties. It's just about, well, at least I didn't, it was just way more about fun for me. And then you have kids and then you're like, Oh crap. I wish I had, I wish I had saved the way that I could have. Okay. So Tamin, let me ask you this. All right. So did you feel like you had the education or the information in your twenties chat now? I had, I had my parents, thank goodness, who were like, okay, you need to save, but that's all kind of, I heard, which is like, you need to save and we'll help you with your health, like learning about healthcare and getting, you know, stuff like that. But I didn't know anything about credit score. I didn't know anything about investing. I didn't know anything about debt. So I had a business manager as a kid and then they kind of did everything. And then when the business manager left, because I was like, I'm going to do this myself. I was like, oh my goodness, I have no idea. Yeah. And, you know, so the reason I ask you that question is when we think about, you know, a lot of people when they get into their 30s, they shame themselves for decisions they made in their 20s. And as a financial educator, I have found that shame is not a motivator for a lot of people. Shame (laughs) actually, um, and people make poorer financial decisions from a place of shame than they actually do from a position of empowerment. Mm -hmm. And so like the twenties, they happen, like you lived your life, you have those memories. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I'm mindful of now, you know, 2020, when we were all locked down, I was really sitting there with my memories from my twenties and everything like, man, I'm so (laughs) glad I traveled and did those things because what if the world doesn't open back up the way it was, or like now, Mm -hmm. you know what? I'm stuck on my couch, but I'm gonna think about that trip I took to Africa, you know, and Mm -hmm. I'm going to revel in that. And so I think that for a lot of people, if we did have those experiences, our twenties, it served a purpose to an extent, right? It served a space for exploration, but now we're in our thirties or beyond. Mm -hmm. And now it's time to make better decisions because now we know better. I don't shame anyone for not doing better when they didn't know any better. And I won't shame you even if you know better. Um, But it's like, okay, now it's game time because Mm -hmm. this is what we have. This is what we're dealing with. So let's focus on where we are and what we're dealing with. If we can play catch up, then let's play catch up. The great thing. I think, you know, we're in our twenties, right? We think about like, by the time I'm 30, I'm going to have it all <laughs> together. And then we get to our 30s. House and, okay. and the kids and you're like, holy crap. 
Right. When you get to 30, you're like, wait a minute. Okay, by 40. Give me, give me 40. You know? yeah. And then by 40, you're probably like, you know, when I hit 50, that's it. That's so, it. That's like, yeah. So I just, it reminds us like there's time, there's options at each age, at each stage. Yes, there, like being in your 20s, like that is valuable time that you could use to really get a leg up and really mm-hmm. kickstart things. That doesn't mean that in your 30s, you can't. And mm-hmm. so when I'm working with my clients, like, what can we do based on where we are? Like, how do we catch up? Do we need to bring in more money? Do we need to negotiate so that you have more money to work and more mm-hmm. discretionary income? How, how are we using this money now? Like, we shouldn't be using this money like we did in our 20s. We need to make sure we're putting it aside. Um, what type of investments make sense for us? to catch up or that can kind of cover some of that ground that we might've missed. But for anybody who's listening and they're in their thirties and they feel like the money wagon has passed them, the money wagon has not passed you. I can promise you. It's just a matter of saying, okay, this is where I am right now. And how do I wisely use where I am right now? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, that's good to know. Uh, but also wanted to talk because we're all, you know, parents here. So for our kids investing and kind of building their credit and their financial mm-hmm. futures, what is the best way to go about that? A, so they have, you know, very good like financial hygiene. They grow up with, you know, mm-hmm. having these positive sort of financial teachings and things like that. But also, how do we build? their, you know, investments and their, their credit up. I mean, I know, I don't know if this is still, um, advisable, but you know, when I was young, our, my parents started us with like bank accounts when we were, you know, I guess like five or six years old, you know, Mm -hmm. put a little bit of money and not just like huge amounts of money. I've just consistently sort of added money in to build things until we could start doing investments and things like that. So how do we, what is the best way to do that? So we can guide our kids. Okay. All right. So I want to make sure I wrote some things down because I want to make sure that I don't miss these things. Okay. So the first thing is like, always remember your kids are watching you. Um, I know that growing up, my parents would say, you need save, 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 save. But my parents were also buying luxury cars like every three years. Mm -hmm. So it was like, you're doing things differently than what you told me to do. And Mm -hmm. I'm doing what I saw you do, not what I heard you say. And so we have to think about the fact that our children are watching us and that we are modeling sound financial behaviors, Mm -hmm. but also that we don't want to model in a way that it feels restrictive. And so I've met people who are like, my mom never bought me a new pair of, you know, sneakers growing up. So now every time I get paid, I'm buying a new pair of sneakers. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. mom, that had a counterproductive effect because now they're overspending instead of being frugal, which is what you were probably trying to drive home instead of Mm -hmm. teaching that there's a balance. There's Mm -hmm. a balance between addressing what you want and addressing what you need to do and showing how you straddle that balance. So demonstrating Mm -hmm. that in day-to-day life, how that operates, talking through things like, Hey, yeah. So you want to go on this field trip, but you also want to do this. So this is how we look at balance. And this is how we execute that or how we implement balance when it comes to our finances, which is really important because Mm -hmm. you'll have bills that you have to pay and you have things that you want to do. So the first is ensuring that you're showing them sound financial behaviors, not just Mm -hmm. telling them sound financial Mm -hmm. behaviors. Mm -hmm. The second thing is when it comes to credit, remember that your credit becomes their credit initially. You're not allowed to have a credit score until you're 18 years of age. So in a lot of times, what parents can do is add their children as an authorized user to one of their credit cards. That means you're going to want to have a credit card that you've had almost perfect payment history that you've had for, you know, ideally 10 plus years or five plus years that you can add your child on as an authorized user so that your financial history on that card becomes their financial history. And now they're starting their credit portfolio with a seasoned, well-utilized, responsibly used card. Mm-hmm. So your behaviors are as, as important in building their credit. And then, you know, I know that my first credit card, I didn't tell my mom about it. Mm-hmm. I went to college, yeah, same, but same. wisely enough, I sent the bill to their house. Um, <laughs> and so my mom got the bill and she was like, oh, you're eating red lobster. What did you order? Like, what are you doing? And, um, but she paid it, you know, my mom ended up, she was like, okay, well, you don't have a job. So I have no idea why you thought it was okay to get a credit card, but we're going to pay this for you. And because they paid that off for me, I ended up having great credit. And so maybe ha- allow them to have a credit card. And like, I think that if my mom would have had a conversation with me up front, I would have been less likely to get into credit card debt versus hiding that card from her. And so I think it is like, you know, understanding that they're going to want their own card, walking them through that process, but 18 is the age that they can actually get one. And then the third thing is um, let kids use money. Like 
I think that I've met parents who like, they don't want their children to work. They don't want children to earn their own money. They don't want them to buy things. They want to give them everything, but then they don't have an understanding of how money truly mm-hmm. works. And that money runs out. Mm-hmm. Like if you allow them to utilize money and understand it's not infinite, it runs out eventually. Mm-hmm. You have to be mindful in how you use it. That's a really powerful teaching mechanism. And one of those things could be a custodial account. So you can open a custodial banking account. So they have mm-hmm. their own bank account. They can put, you know, Christmas money in, they can put birthday money in, they can put allowance money in, whatever it is, but they have their own custodial account. And then as a parent, you can also be buying them stocks. And so my son, we have a custodial stock account where my goal is to put like $250 in there every week and um, I can buy portions of stocks. And so I might not say, okay, we're gonna buy all shares of Amazon, but we're putting $250 a week in. Okay, so $1,000 each month is like, we're able to buy like portions of that stock until you eventually have like three shares of Amazon in your portfolio and you're three years old. Mm -hmm. And so um, I would say, you know, you can can get custodial accounts. And the great thing about this, if a parent is hesitant to invest on their own, there's time. You have ample time for that stock to perform and everything else and like mitigate risk and everything um, if you're investing in it while they're a young age and just continue to do that over time. And the last tip I would say is, you know, people think that estate plans are only for the wealthy. Um, but when we think about opening multiple accounts for our children, it's important to like, who's going to be the touch per- touch point person if something happens to you? And how do they find out they have access to those accounts? How do they know where that money is? Do you want them to have certain limitations on how they are able to use the money that you leave behind, even if it's a life insurance policy. Um, my One of my best friends, her mother passed away when we were 19 years old and didn't put any stipulations on the money. And she was completely, She I think she inherited like $380,000 mm-hmm. and she didn't have any of it two years later because at 19, what are you going to do if there aren't any restrictions on your money? Mm-hmm. You're going to think like, and you're, you don't have anyone else who is overseeing how you're utilizing that money. <laughs> So um, it's important to think about an estate plan if you're thinking about putting money aside for your kids. That way, someone is there to manage it to make sure that they're using it responsibly. Mm. I mean, these are amazing tips. And I think that people who are listening are going to be, oh my gosh, this this is something that I obviously have to think about. But I think we need to talk about the fact that so many people and many of our listeners who've sent in questions are in debt. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of them are in their 30s and they've, you know, got credit card debt and school debt and college and all these different credit cards that are maxed out. And then they're now earning money. Mm-hmm. So how, if you've got debt and you're now earning money, what is the best way to get out of debt? Because I know like, you know, I, I had a period of my life, I think just in my late twenties where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm starting to go into debt. And like, mm-hmm. how am I going to get out of it when I'm like spending more than I'm making. And then, so what are your tips when people are in debt and they can't see out of it? They feel like they're buried by it. You have to start small. You really do have to start small when you're in debt. And I think a lot of people look at the larger number instead of looking at the smallest number and tackling that smallest number first. So, okay, you have $75,000 worth of credit card debt, or you have $13,000 worth of credit card debt. Is that all on one credit card or do you have smaller credit card balances that we can tackle, which is what you call the snowball method. Um, and And also stop spending, you know, like do what you need to do, cut the card up, take it out your wallet. For me, I don't even carry, like I'm a financial educator who likes things. I am, I do not believe in deprivation as a financial freedom strategy. Mm-hmm. I buy things that I want. Um, but I also do not take my credit cards with me in the stores. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, no, they're just not, even now it's the practice where it's like, okay, we don't have them on us. So stop spending, find a way to like, even, I don't recommend closing the card, but if you feel like the only way you will not spend with mm-hmm. that card is to close it, then close it then absolutely. And then we'll work on your behaviors down the line after you pay this debt off. But then the next thing would be that you should start tackling the smallest amount first. If you have a credit card for a thousand dollars, pay the minimum amount on the other credit cards or whatever it may be, and then put everything else, the minimum and extra towards that thousand dollar balance until you pay that off. We're going to focus on that. One of the biggest mistakes that I think a lot of people do when it comes to their finances is they're like trying to put out fires everywhere. They're like, okay, I'm going to pay this off and I'm going to pay this down. I'm pay this off and pay this. And they're not really making a concerted effort at one specific debt and paying that off and moving on to the next. So their money is just kind of like, it's like if you have sand, right? And you put sand on a, a, a like a glass table 
and you're like smoothing it around all over the table, you're going to have bare spots versus if you just pile all that sand into one area and cover that up and take care of that, then move it to the next area. Mm -hmm. And so instead of spreading your money around, focus on one debt and then move to the next one. Stop looking at the bigger number. Look at the smaller number, chip away at the smaller number. And by chipping away at that smaller number, you chip away at the bigger number. And sometimes you need to make more money. Like I am also of the mindset that sometimes people just don't make enough money to achieve the goals that they need to achieve. So you have to figure out how am I going to make more money? Like what type of side hustle can I do? What do I have an interest in? How can I better monetize my time? Maybe you can cut back on some things, but I'm also like, yeah, you can cut back on like $600 a year. But if you have $70,000 worth of credit card debt, that $600,000 is not going to, that $600 is not going to feel like a significant amount. Mm-hmm. We need to figure out how to turn that $600 into an additional like $1,000 or an additional $1,500 so that can really make a dent. Mm-hmm. So we have to figure out how you're going to make more money too sometimes. Mm. Yeah, those are great tips. Um talking about because obviously we've been through this crazy time with covid and like mm-hmm. you know the shutdown and a lot of people were not making money and really getting into debt some even declared personal bankruptcy you know after mm-hmm. this time um so after something like a personal bankruptcy a is it possible to re you know reestablish good credit kind of repair your credit how long does that take how long mm-hmm. does personal bankruptcy last on your credit score? And is it possible to secure a mortgage after a personal bankruptcy? Yeah. I mean, you know, we've seen examples of people who've had bankruptcy and went on. <laughs> who would that be? Who went would on to that do be? Really, really big things, you know, <laughs> really big things. So a bankruptcy does not stop you from moving forward and getting back on track financially. Um, usually it impacts you about seven to 10 years mm-hmm. and it depends on the type of bankruptcy and I'm not a bankruptcy attorney, um, but it depends on the type of bankruptcy, but some of them, like as soon as you get your paperwork and you've kind of like finished your filing in court and everything, you can actually start rebuilding your credit. And that might be through a secured card. That might be like Finger Hut is like this, um, this Mac catalog ordering um, company, but it's notorious for allowing people to start to rebuild their credit, even if they've had um, bankruptcies and everything else. So you would just need to start, I think a credit card is going to be one of the best ways to start to rebuild your credit history. And then just understand you'll get qualified for things. You're just going to pay a premium for them initially until you um, boost your credit score again. So you can get a car, a mortgage is a stretch. It's, it, that's a stretch, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, within seven to 10 years, you would be able to qualify for a mortgage, um, again, after you've been working at your finances. So you would have to baby step your way out of it. You, and you also want to take that time to figure out like, how do I even get into this mess in the first place mm-hmm. and how do I avoid going into it? So while I'm waiting for buying my house, which buying a house is not the end all be all like I, me and my husband bought a house last year. Yay. We're happy that we have our house. But there are some benefits that come with not being a homeowner, like mm-hmm. not being on the hook if something goes wrong in the house or being able to pick up and move if your job demands it or you no longer like the area or the school system is not working for your kids anymore. So there are some benefits to not being in a home that you can take advantage of while you're renting and getting your finances back together so that you can buy a home when your finances are ready. But it takes generally about seven to 10 years for you to have that bankruptcy removed from your credit report and for it to kind disappear we should say like nothing really truly disappears but Mm -hmm. for it to not have the same impact as it did initially and what if people didn't go as far as bankruptcy but just covid really did affect their credit score right so Mm -hmm. they're in the 80s or 70s so like even for me like my credit score was so great and then it dipped a little bit so then my question is how do you raise that even like and how long does it take to raise your credit score yeah. I mean, you, you can raise your credit score on like 30 days. I remember when I first got it started. So my focus when I first got started with my Fed finance was to improve my credit score by 130 points. And um, well, I wanted to improve my credit score because I was like, by the age of 30, I should have all my ish together and I need to have a 700 credit score. Um, so I was working on that and I improved my credit score 130 points in 18 months when I got started. And it was just learning how credit works. Credit mm-hmm. is a puzzle. And I was talking to an accountant a few days ago and he was like, you know, the IR, the tax code is really just like a playbook for like incentivizing you to make certain financial decisions that benefit the economy that also have positive tax repercussions for you. Mm -hmm. And the same thing is for credit. Like credit is really just a 
It's like a puzzle. And if you do certain things at this part of the puzzle and do certain things in that part of the puzzle, you start to see the benefits of it. So understanding like what are the what are the actions that most are most beneficial to your credit score? First one is definitely paying on time. That's really heavy. Um, that's 30% or 35%. But then there's also how you're utilizing your credit cards. And so that accounts for 30%. So right now, like paying on time and how you utilize it is 65% of your credit mm. score. That means that if you have a credit card that has a $1,000 limit and you have spent $900 on that, you're near maxing it out and that has negative repercussions for your credit score. So that means that we want to pay that down to 30%. So we don't necessarily have to pay it off for it to boost our credit score, but we need to have it at that 30% mark. So we need the balance needs to be less than $300. So when I was working on my credit, that's what I did because remember I said like that those focused efforts make sense. And so I was just focused on paying everything down or close to 30%. And then I came back and paid everything off because that allowed me to boost my credit score, which then I was like, okay, my credit score is good. All right, now let's pay this debt off because I was focused on boosting my credit score. So you just have to understand how it works. There are a few forums I really love. Um, the FICO forum, myfico.com has a free forum that you can see what people are doing, like what cards they are using to boost their credit, um, to um what, what cards are using to like increase their credit score? What companies are more favorable to people who have lower credit scores versus mid credit scores versus high credit scores? Who's giving higher credit limits? Because that matters too. If they're giving higher credit limits, that means you have a little more leeway when it comes to how much you can spend before it impacts your utilization. So really just geek. If, if you want to improve your credit, like geek out on it, just like Read those yes. forums because it's, <laughs> it's really actually quite interesting. And then it gets to a point where you're like, you see your credit score drop. You're like, oh, I know what to do. You know, I, I don't advise for people to pay someone to fix their credit because if something happens, you don't know what you did. It's almost like if you pay someone to cook your Thanksgiving meal, which I'm doing, <laughs> but it's almost like if you pay someone to cook your Thanksgiving meal and then like you didn't cook it. So next Thanksgiving, you don't know what to do because someone else cooked it the last year for you mm -hmm. versus if you fix your credit yourself or you work on your credit yourself, if anything happens, you're like, oh, okay, this happened. I know how that happened. I know what to do. And now you can use that money that you would have used to pay someone else mm -hmm. to put it towards whatever you need to focus on financially. I have to ask this though, because, uh, and I, this is because I've been with a business manager for so many years, where do you find your credit score? Because I always thought that if you ran your, like when they run your credit score, then that's a negative impact on your credit score. So how do you find it? Is there a website where you can watch it drop and raise? Absolutely. So when you check your credit report yourself, you do not get dinged because that's called a soft inquiry, a soft wow. inquiry. Like you can, I have credit karma. I have all those credit, I've chased credit journey, capital one's monitoring service. And I check my credit like once a week, like just to make okay. sure everything's on the up and up and it does not negatively impact your credit score. And, but it only negatively impact your credit score is only negatively impacted if you're applying for new debt. So if you are, or applying for a new account of some sort. Mm -hmm. So if you're applying for a mortgage, if you're applying for a credit card, then, or if you're buying a car, they're like, oh, okay, they're shopping for credit, which means they might add to their debt to income ratio, which means let's see how they manage this. Let's see what happens mm -hmm. with that. Go ahead and dock their score a little bit. So that's when it negatively impacts your credit score. But there are a lot of sites out there, Credit Karma, like I mentioned, and if you have a credit card or a bank relationship, that bank most likely has a relationship with like some type of credit monitoring software. Mm -hmm. Just important to keep in mind that that's considered a FICO score. So FICO is the actual company that owns the IP related to calculating credit scores and taking all this financial information and then putting out a code uh, or putting out a score. So FICO owns that. And for a long time, you could only get your credit score by going through FICO or if a lender had an account with FICO. But now all these other companies are like, hey, we've seen what they've done long enough. Let's create our own algorithm. Let's mirror it as much as we can to FICO mm -hmm. and we can send it to consumers because that probably has value to them. They don't just want their credit score when they're buying something. So that's considered a FICO score. Might have some variation between your actual FICO score, but it is still a good base for understanding where you are as far as your credit journey and where mm -hmm. you are in the score range. Sometimes it might deviate 15 points or so. Um, and sometimes it's pretty accurate. 
-hmm. And it's important to also keep in mind, most people have over 40 different credit scores because it's not just Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. Mm -hmm. Mortgage companies have their own algorithm they use, which is your mortgage score. Auto, okay. auto lenders have their own algorithm that they use where it highly, it looks at your previous auto history and weighs that more. And it takes that more into consideration. It doesn't necessarily care as much about medical debt and things like that. So there are like industry specific credit scores as well mm. that you will not have access to until mm. you apply, such as insurance. Insurance, they run your credit. They want to see, but they're looking at different things than someone who's going to give you a cell phone would or someone mm -hmm. who's going to give you a mortgage would. So just keep that in mind. You have multiple different credit scores. Those FACO scores are the ones provided by your bank or Credit Karma or these other credit monitoring softwares are really helpful in understanding where you are and what range you're following mm. in. Wow, fascinating. I feel like I said a lot. Yeah, I'm really no, passionate about it. I'm writing guys. it all down. This is the first time in like 120 podcasts. I'm like, okay, my FICO dog. <laughs> I'm honored. I'm honored to be a credit so expert good. in 120. Like that's, I was like, yeah. oh, yeah. we can do this. No, we can do, do this regularly. Yes, yes yeah, no, please. Yes, yes. Um, so I was really interested in, in, in talking about passive income, mm. just so our, just so our listeners know passive income is not like your nine to five job income that you, you know, go to work and you get paid for passive income is when your money kind of works for you, you know, and you're, you're creating these income streams that are passive, um, quite literally. So I know that, you know, within that, that falls, you know, investments, you know, mm -hmm. stocks, brokerage accounts, things like that, but also real estate investments too, like in, you know, investment properties. So can you speak to, um, you know, us and our listeners about the best way to kind of harness passive income and really make it work for you? Yeah. So I really also want to set the stage in the understanding that most passive income is active at first. Like you don't just pass your way into an additional extra, you know, a couple thousand dollars, a couple hundred dollars a month. Um, but the great thing is if you do it right and you set it up with the proper systems or processes, it can become passive. I mean, some of my favorite passive income sources are like a book. I wrote a book three years ago when I was pregnant with my, like, I just had my son. I was like, let's, no, I think I was, pre I was pregnant with my son. I was like, let's get this book out of here. Um, and I still get royalties each and every month from that book. So it's literally, I monetize my intellectual property, turn that into a book that pays me passively. And I literally don't have to do anything because it's on Amazon. So that's an example where utilizing your IP or, or your intelligence to create a passive income product. I also have a course that I created on credit that I know someone who teaches like this real estate course and he licenses out my credit course. Mm -hmm. I literally taught that course in 2015 and mm -hmm. I'm still getting paid from it every single month from licensing. So that's one way to look at it is like, do I have an intellectual skill set that I can license out to other people or that I could create one time and then sell it? Another, when you brought up um, investments, investing such as in the stock market, it takes a substantial amount of volume for that to truly become passive income. So we're not going to buy like $10,000 worth of stocks and think, okay, now this is passive because if you're probably going to get um, some dividends that come from that, but the dividends might be like 10 cents. Mm -hmm. The dividends might be a couple of dollars. If that money is best served is doing what they call a drip, which is dividend reinvestment. You just allow that money to go back into more portions of stocks for that company or purchase more stocks from that company. When we think about making money from um, investments, like we're talking someone who has like six figures worth of investments, making money off of that. Mm -hmm. So if you get a large amount of money and you're like, I just want to put this in an investment so that it can create passive, then cool. But if this is someone who's like, I don't have six figures to put aside for that, then we have to look at other strategies. Real estate is one of them. Mm -hmm. um, the thing about real estate, you know, is passive-ish. It's, it's passive-ish, meaning, you know, you can get a tenant in there who is very needy and they're calling you every week and asking you to do something related to the property if you don't have a property management company. And then if you get a property management company, they might eat into your, your profits. Um, and so you might not make as much cash flow. But, you know, it is to an extent, you know, ideally someone would get a great tenant in there. They pay their rent on time. You're making money at the rent um, when it comes to the rent and the cash flow from the rent. And you're also making money, you know, through potential appreciation of that property. Mm -hmm. So it is a good investment in that regard. But I think we have to reframe passive. Sometimes people want passive to be, I don't ever have to lift a finger. Mm -hmm. And sometimes passive might be, I only have to maintain it 
every couple of months or so mm-hmm. versus me having to work on it every single day. So um, a real estate is another example of passive income, but I really like the, you know, the intellectual property model. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you could create a store online. Mm-hmm. I know some people who have done this, they do drop shipping mm-hmm. um, because creating a store like on Etsy is not passive because you're making mm-hmm. things, you're selling them. That's not passive. Mm-hmm. But if you do something with like drop shipping, where the factory or the warehouse is located in Florida and you live in California mm-hmm. and people go to the website and buy things and you never have to touch the product and it ships out to them and you're making money off of it. Mm-hmm. That's a form of passive income. But you have to think about who's marketing that company, who's ensuring that it's getting traffic. Um, What I've seen some people do is like they literally will create a website where or they'll create an online store Mm -hmm. and they will optimize it for SEO purposes. Wherein if someone goes looking for that, it's going to show up in the or something related to that product. It's going to show up in the Google search engine results. Mm -hmm. People are going to go read and they're like, oh, I actually need this product. And they check out and buy it. And so now they've used search engine optimization to create a passive website that does drop shipping. That's a way that you can make passive income in that area. Um, But it it takes work on the front end or Mm -hmm. affiliates. Affiliates is another thing. You know, I've met a man who sold his website for $4 million and he sold it because he had a lot of affiliate links on there. So he optimized it for SEO. People would come and say, learn about refinancing a car. And they have an affiliate link where it takes people to where they can refinance their car. And he might get a kickback of $150 per person who refinances their car. So now he hasn't been involved in the process at all, other than when he initially set the website up. Oh my so God. those are examples. And then he was able to sell the website like for $4 million because it brings in so much passive revenue. So those are things that take time initially. Passive mm-hmm. income is going to be active at first, but then you set things and you do it well. You might come in and do a few minor tweaks and mm-hmm. they they work like they work like clockwork. Wow. Please be our financial advisors. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm like, when can I speak to you every day? Um, I'm like obsessed with learning about money. I've always been very mu- like money driven, but not because I want all these Gucci bags and houses, but I just love the process. My dad, you know, started from nothing and we immigrated from South Africa to Australia and they had to start again. He had a business in South Africa, couldn't take any money out of the country. So I watched my dad come from like nothing and build this multi-million dollar business like with his hand you know the with his hands pretty much like he did mm-hmm. um he did a uh, uh, marketing i'd see him every day go out and fight for his dreams so i've always been obsessed with i've always mm-hmm. thought that money can be made i've always had a really good relationship with money it's always come in and gone out and come in and gone out there's been some times where i think i could have been better with my money but now i'm at this point where it's like fascinates me right so i'm like okay so let's talk about like stocks. Let's talk about cryptocurrency. Let's talk about all those different things that like I'm super into, but I'm like an idiot when it comes to it. Like I invested in cryptocurrency, like the minuscule amount. And I thought to myself, well, I'll just watch it. And if it starts to raise and I'll be like, okay, well, that was a good investment. I'll just, I'll just invest 20 times more than I already invested because it went up a little bit. So I was like playing with like little tiny um, increments, Mm -hmm. but I'm like, I want to know about stocks. I want to know about cryptocurrency and also your opinion if cryptocurrency is worth it. Mm -hmm. Um, But like, where do you even start? Like I have the book, like stocks for dummies and I'm still confused. (laughs) So like, how do you start? You know, well, and also shout out to your dad. Um, like, yeah. you know, I'm like, I'm an entrepreneur. I've been an entrepreneur for six years and I have such a space, soft space in my heart for entrepreneurs because we literally make it our responsibility to create solutions to other people's problems mm-hmm. and we make really good things. Some of us make really good money doing it. So um, I think that, and I'm also really big on entrepreneurship and people investing in their businesses and their dreams, because I know hands down, there was no way I was going to make a million dollars working for someone else. It just, right. It just didn't make sense. Like, why would you pay me that? Um, But I was able to make it working for myself. So I'm really, really big on entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And as far as um, cryptocurrency, I think think that it has a lot of promise. I think Mm -hmm. that once companies and governments figure out how to use it and understand it better, they will get on the wagon and they'll use it more. Do I completely understand it? No, but I do put a lot of my, I put discretion, I call it my play money in it. 
So like, it's not money that I have to use. Like it's not anything that comes out of my other primary investments or money that is going to be used towards like my son's education or anything like that. But it's like, okay, got a couple of extra hundred dollars here. Let's buy some Shiba Unu and see what it does. <laughs> yeah. like, all right. Let's, let's like, what are Shiba these Unu. names? <laughs> like, let's, let's do it. Um, and a lot of times I learn, I, I, I have a few people who I kind of trust and talk to, mm-hmm. but, um, there are like, you know, YouTube videos, there's so much education online. There's Reddit threads. And a, a lot of times I'll just sit in my bed and just read Reddit threads and just see mm-hmm. what people are saying. And some of these Reddit threads, I think wall street vets might've, I don't know if they're still around. Um, but like NFTs is something else I'm interested in. Mm-hmm. Like, how does this really work? So just really familiarizing myself with what's going on. Um, I think that one of the biggest mistakes that I probably made um, was not buying Bitcoin when it was like $9,000 and thinking I, like, right. it's going to bust. And then I was telling my husband that literally last night, I was like, dude, I really should have bought some Bitcoin when it was $9,000. <laughs> um, but now I'm just buying portions of it. I chip away at it. And that's the great thing about crypto is you can chip away and own, own portions of coins. Um, and so I just put money towards it. But I, again, that's my play money. So if anybody wants to learn about stocks, I would say, you know, the first place would be like, go to reputable like YouTube channels, go to reputable companies, you know, Fidelity, Robinhood, they all have education around stocks and growing in that. And some of it just comes from doing, some of it really just comes from doing and saying like, oh, okay, that's how it works. Like say, all right, I'm going to put a hundred dollars or I'm going to buy these two shares and I'm going to wait for earnings reports to come out and see what happens. And like, oh, okay. That's how it works. You don't, I don't feel like you really understand stocks until you start playing with them yeah. and, th- and, and then it hits um, and understand what type of investor you want to be. You don't have to be versed on the stock market if you want to, I mean, you shouldn't be knowledgeable, but you don't have to be an expert if you want to be a buy and hold person, because if you're buying and holding, you're just buying it and seeing what happens. And you're like, okay, in 10, 20 years, I'm going to cash this out. You might want to be mindful of what companies have promised, mm-hmm. but you don't need to like know like, okay, this is how it's swinging on a weekly basis. And now I'm, so I'm taking December off to learn how to trade because I did realize that investing was one of my blind spots that mm-hmm. I really want to focus on. And I've met a lot of my friends that are making a lot of money in trading. And I was like, if I decide that I don't want to talk to people ever again, but I still want to make money, I want to be able to do that. And so mm-hmm. I'm learning how to trade because one of my friends, he was, I was just talking to him yesterday. He made like $300,000 in three weeks trading. Mm, wow. So I'm like, I get, and legitimately like, and not mm-hmm. in like scammy bot stuff that mm-hmm, we see on Instagram. Mm-hmm. It's like legit learning. So I was like, this is worth me learning how to do. Um, <laughs> and, but you don't have to do that if you don't want to. And, but if you do like learn how it works, like really mm-hmm. focus and in practice. A lot of these um, sites have like practice accounts where mm-hmm. it's not your money. And you oh, can just, it's like great. simulations. Mm-hmm. So it's simulating with their money. Like, I think this is a good, we call it play. So mm-hmm. I think this is a good play. Let me try it out and see how it does. Mm-hmm. And that starts to build your confidence too. Because remember I said, we don't learn from deprivate. We don't learn from shame. We learn from empowerment. So now mm-hmm. you're empowering yourself to apply the knowledge that you're learning to see how it works. And you become more confident and you start becoming more confident using your real money. Mm, mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, also wanted to ask you about these um, apps, like these money apps, specifically Digit, Acorn, that sort of say they're taking away money for you or they're mm-hmm. taking money and, you know, investing it for you. What are your thoughts on those um, particular apps? And I love others that you like, you do. Okay. Yeah. I love Digit. I actually bought my, um, my wedding dress with Digit Did back you? when I, yeah, back when I first got started. Um, life was so different when I first got started. <laughs> uh, but when I first got started, yeah, I was using Digit and I think I had like $900 stocked away. Like they had just been stocking, with shock, mm-hmm. um, putting money away from me. And I ended up buying a wedding dress with that money. Um, and so the way they work, they do have a special ag- algorithm for people who are like, what is Digit? Digit is a program that can connect to your primary checking account or whatever checking account you want it to. And then what it does is it automatically saves small amounts of money for you based on looking at your spending behaviors, because they're like, they're probably going to spend this money anyway. So let's take it, but it's not going to be a necessity. Most likely it's going to be like that target run or whatever. Mm -hmm. So let's go ahead and put small amounts of this away for them and save it in a rainy day fund. But we also have been analyzing their spending behaviors. So we know that on the first of the month, they pay their mortgage or between the first and the 10th, they're going to have a large deduction come out for their mortgage. And that's when they pay the bulk of their bills. We're not going to take any money out during that time. Mm -hmm. We're going to see what's left over after that. 
And then we might put a small amount of that over and, and another and a little rainy day fund for them. And the great thing about Digit Acorn, a lot of them have policies where they say, we trust our algorithms so much that we will reimburse you any overdraft fees that you would incur as a result of us taking money out your account. Mm-hmm. So they do provide that protection. And I mean, granted, people are going to say, well, you're a financial educator. You have a handle on your money. Um, but early on, when I was still getting a handle on my money, mm-hmm. I used Digit and I never had any issues with it overdrafting. So if you're someone who says, I know I need to be saving more and I'm not doing it, set up that account, like set up a digit, mm-hmm. set up an acorn allowed. Now, granted, it's not going to be your emergency fund where it's not going to replace that. Or maybe it take a couple of years to replace that. Mm-hmm. You should still be saving actively in a separate checking account. Mm-hmm. And then you should also use that as a way to supplement the savings that you have, because maybe, yeah, you know, like I actually was thinking today, I was like, I haven't checked my digit in a while, but because I'm going to start trading, there's probably money in my digit that I could use for trading. And I'll just put that in my mm-hmm. trading account and just use that to trade with. So, it's so like, you, you do have access to the account, right? It's not yeah. like they take the money away and it's like locked up there and you can't no. take it for a while. Yeah. Okay, you so can literally good. type in like, I want my, I want, how much money is my, um, give my, my money balance? back. <laughs> yeah. You can literally say, what's my balance? Okay. Send me 500 of that. And they'll be like, cool. $500 will arrive in your account, you know, in two to three days. Like, mm-hmm. so it's, yeah, you get your money. You can get your money when you need it. Can you be, cause I've heard from, and other, you know, other financial advisors online, like you, can you save if you have debt or should you get out of debt before you start saving? So I'm curious, what have you heard people say? Have you heard people say? <laughs> I've heard people say, do not say like the first, the, your priority is to get out of debt because you don't really have savings if you're still in debt. Oh my gosh. Okay. So this sounds like a certain someone who I don't agree with their financial. Um, I don't, I don't, I, what does their name rhyme with? Yeah. Pansy. Yeah. Um, so um, I don't believe in that because here's the thing. If we focus solely on paying off debt, the next time an emergency happens and we don't have any savings, our only option is to create more debt. And so I strongly believe that when you create a savings, you allow yourself to be your own bank account and that you should still work on paying down your debt, but you should prioritize your savings because life is going to happen. So whether that is putting aside, now you can, what you can do is create a a floor where it's like, or yeah, you can create a floor and be like, after I save $2,500, then I'll begin aggressively saving again. But I think that you should have a certain amount that you want in your savings account before you aggressively pay down debt. Because we're just going to end up in square one. Like once you pay a debt or you pay, say you pay, you know, MasterCard, whatever MasterCard <laughs> you have, say you pay a debt off and like you owe them $2,500, you pay $2,500, something happens, you get like, I don't know, like uh, you get something happens to your roof on your house right. and you need to re- repair that. You don't have $2,500 in your savings account because you gave it to MasterCard. And MasterCard's not going to say, oh, that happened? Here, let's give you your money back so you can pay that. They're going to be like, okay, well, you can create debt and pay interest on this money, and then we'll start over again. Welcome back. So I highly recommend that people build a certain amount of money in their savings, aggressively save, and then switch gears to aggressively eliminating debt once they have a a, a, a whatever amount they're comfortable with in their savings account. Mm. Is it possible? Because I know this was... um kind of before, uh, you know, I would, I, I've not tried it myself, but I actually want to, um, you can, act, that you could actually negotiate with credit card companies to lower your interest rates mm-hmm. on your credit card. So like, you're not paying like 23% interest, let's say on your, you know, credit cards. Is there mm-hmm. a way to still do that where you can negotiate with the actual credit card companies? Yeah. So that is a thing you can okay. do that. Um, there are a few things that, so there is a script, um, Ramit Sethi, um, his book is I, I Will Teach You To Be Rich. Mm-hmm. He has um, the script on his website and it's, you know, it's a pretty solid script. The thing is that you want to make sure that you have a good standing with that company, mm-hmm. like, because it gives you more room for negotiation. If you are a, a problem borrower and mm-hmm. you don't pay on time as is, mm-hmm. then they're going to be like, no, we're not doing you any favors mm-hmm. versus if you're someone like, hey, I had 
questionable credit when I first established my relationship with you. I've demonstrated that I am a solid borrower. I pay my credit card on time every month. I keep my limits within reason. Mm -hmm. This, now that my life has changed and my spending behaviors has changed, I do not think that this interest rate reflects where I am financially. And I would Mm -hmm. like to find out about if I can negotiate it down or if there's a more competitive interest rate, because now that my credit has improved, I have other options with other lenders. And I'm considering closing this card for for something else that is more competitive Mm -hmm. of an interest rate that reflects where I am right now in my finances. So that's, you know, mm-hmm. that's kind of how you flow that conversation, but mm-hmm. you want to make sure that you've had positive payment history with them because mm-hmm. otherwise it's going to be like, what? Okay. No, you're going to pay this interest rate because who wants you? So you have to look at it as like, how yeah. do I make myself as most, more competitive so that other creditors or other lenders want my business. And another thing that there are other few other things you can negotiate. Sometimes you, if you know, post pandemic or during the pandemic, quite a few people had financial, um, constraints or they saw a significant loss of income. Sometimes you can contact them and they'll waive the interest for a certain amount of months. That happened to me when I changed my job, um, when I was still working for nonprofits, I ended up going to a new job and I called my creditor and I think I was just asking some questions. And then I let them know that I was, you know, I got a new job and most of the time you're in that can time frame where it's like, you don't get a paycheck because you got to wait to get one and in the can before you can get a paycheck. And they're like, oh, okay, well that would definitely affect your income here. We'll waive the interest for the next two months. And so they can do things like that. Um, and also one thing that I had to do last year was I try to keep all my credit card balances to a zero. Um, I keep a zero balance on my credit cards. Sometimes I use other ones just because it makes sense for points, but I have forgotten to pay the annual fee. I completely forgot because like there's no balance. There's nothing for me to pay. Forgot to pay the annual fee moved across country from California to Georgia and I missed the mail and I ended up getting a 30 day late for an annual fee. So they charged me a 30 day late. This is a card I previously had perfect payment history on. Mm -hmm. When it hit my credit report, it dropped my credit score by 80 points that 30 day late. (gasps) Oh my God. And it was literally because of annual fee. I was livid. Um, I ended up writing the company. I wrote their executive office and I pleaded my case. I was like, I've had this card for seven years. I've had perfect payment history. I haven't ever had a 30 day late. Um, I would, could you please make an exception because these things were going on in my life during that time. And they made an exception. They removed the 30 day late and my credit score is back to its glory. So you can reach out to them often if it's a one-time thing and you have a good relationship with them. What is a you competitive, what's too, a, right? you do. And yeah. what's a competitive interest rate right now for credit cards? Like what's like the what <sighs> you want to shoot for? I mean, so you can do introductory rates, which are 0%. Um, but usually though, if you find a 0% card, that's usually going to be an introductory offer where it'll be for like maybe 12 months. I've seen them as long as 24 months, but it's not for the life of the card oftentimes because credit card companies want to make money too. And they make money off of interest. Um, so a competitive, I would say around 13, it's going to be, I've, I feel like I might've seen eight is like the lowest I've seen, but on average, yeah, even yeah. for someone with great credit, you're going to be looking at between the eight and 15 range. Mm -hmm. So that's where it just benefits you to just pay things off. If you don't want to pay interest. That makes me so mad. I had a business manager and like amazing credit always in the sevens and my credit, like my repayment was like 22%. My interest. It depends on the card. Some cards (laughs) and some cards have higher interest rates. Like I found that reward cards are going to have highest interest rates because they have to, offset the rewards like mm-hmm. they gotta like they're not gonna give you rewards and give you competitive interest rates in perpetuity like they're like okay we have to make money somehow mm-hmm. so a lot of times what they do is they charge higher interest rates because that helps them pay for the rewards that they have access to or offer that program to you so that isn't necessarily going to be you know based on what your credit is it's kind of like the premium mm-hmm. you pay to have that card and you just mm-hmm. know how to use it you charge get your points and pay the card off before the interest rate even hits. Mm. So for those cards, even store cards, store cards have notoriously high interest rates. So what I'll do, um, like my son, you know, I never had, I, I only had a Macy's store card until I had a child. Mm-hmm. And then I had a child and I had like all the baby clothes store cards. Mm-hmm. And so, but what I would yep. do is because they grow so fast, right? It's like every mm-hmm. season I'm buying him clothes. And so there are perks to having a store card. So what I'll do is I'll go in, I use a store card, 
three days later, I'll go pay it off. Like mm-hmm. before any interest hits, I'll just go ahead and pay the bill off. Um, and so you can use it that way. So you can kind of skate the, um, the interest rate mm-hmm. and, and interest charges. Mm. I feel like I could talk to you for another like two hours, but I know, I, I know we have to go. So I'm going to ask one last question. Roxy will ask one last question and then we'll let you go. So um, I remember when I first got to 30 and tell me if this is a story that is, it isn't even possible. There was this girl who was a friend of mine and she got into some really bad credit card debt and they closed her credit cards down. I remember she came over, she like, we were drinking wine. She was like hysterical. And she called, I remember her saying this. And again, I don't know if this is true because she's not really my friend anymore. And we were just turned 30. Um, she said that she'd called the credit cards and had, so I think that it was like $50,000 worth of debt and they shut it down and she negotiated with them and she paid $20,000 and they cleared her credit cards. Wow. Is that possible? Then why wouldn't everyone do that? Or does it really inf- uh, uh, impact your credit for seven years like bankruptcy? Like, how does that work? Yeah. Okay, so you can do that. That is negotiation. can do that. Okay, so she can. wasn't lying to me over one. She wasn't lying. She wasn't <laughs> lying. Um, but what happens is credit card companies are not going to negotiate with you while things are going good. They're kind of mm-hmm. like, no, just keep doing what you're doing. Give us the money you owe us. No, pay the balance. You have the means. What usually happens is when you have defaulted to the point where they close the account is they start to lose hope and they're like, okay, how can we get our money from you? Like by any means possible. And then they get, they, then they get desperate and they're like, okay, all right, $20,000 is better than nothing. And right now we have nothing from you. So if it takes us negotiating this to get some of this money back, we'll do it so we can get, so it's not completely written off. So that's what she was able to do is that they got to a point where they're like, we don't. We know we're not going to get 50000 from you. So what can we get from you? Mm. The thing about getting to that point, though, is they've already closed the account and it's already negatively affected our credit so- report. Mm. So a lot of times credit is about our relationship to debt and the, her paying that off is not going to boost her credit like score mm-hmm. because it's no longer being factored into her credit score. It's a closed debt. It's no longer, but now what it is, it's like, she's not going to, um, they can't, they won't come after her to garnish her wages. She's not going to get those phone calls anymore. If she does apply for a mortgage, at least the account will say paid for less than the amount owed. Mm-hmm. Sometimes what people are able to do in those negotiations is they can do what you call a pay for delete where they say, okay, you sent this to collections, which collections is one of the worst things that can happen to your credit report. It's kind of like once a collection item hits, the only way for it to improve your credit report or your credit report to improve is just to have that removed. So what she could do is do a pay for delete and say, okay, I owe you $20,000. I'll pay you your $20,000 if you remove that negative debt from my credit report. Mm-hmm. It's up to them if they want to do it or not. Some creditors will do it. Some creditors will say they can't. You pay it and you see the debt falls off in a year. So it just depends. That's where the My FICO forums come in hand or mm-hmm. these online forums because chances are other people have dealt with debt with these companies and you can kind of see how successful people have been mm-hmm. in getting pay for deletes with those certain companies or if they eventually removed it or even how flexible they are in negotiating for less than the amount owed. So it is possible, but they usually will not negotiate with you until you are in severe or significant debt default. So by that time, the damage has been done. And now you're just kind of doing, you're just kind of playing offense to make sure that they don't do anything else to negatively impact you. Can she, would she have been able to improve her credit card score if she had paid it for less than it was? If she paid $25,000 on 50,000, could she over time still increase her credit or, or is that if they wouldn't have closed it? If they wouldn't have closed it or if they no, wouldn't. if they closed it, like she'd said, $50,000 and then they'd pay and then they paid $25,000. Um, what would that do to the credit card score? It won't affect it because it's a closed debt. Only the only debts that can boost your credit report or your credit score are the open credit cards or your mm. open accounts. So a closed, gotcha. like behaviors on a closed account, unless it's removed, the only way that I can positively impact you is removing it. Otherwise, no matter what you do after it's closed, it's not going to help your score. Oh, right. it's not going to help your score. Okay. Yeah, because um, it has to be an open. It takes active credit to build credit. So once they close it, it's 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 a dead, dead in the water. It's, it's dead. Yeah. yeah. So it's like whatever you do is whatever you do. Like mm-hmm. now you're doing this for you, but you're not doing this for your credit score unless they will have agreed to remove it. And now by removing that collection item that can boost your credit score. Mm. So what is, okay, for our listeners that are listening out there, perhaps they have bad credit. They haven't been saving as much as they wanted to. You know, they've got kids and they're trying to figure that whole thing out. 
what are like some practical tips that they can do today to start Mm -hmm. improving their credit, to building their financial future? What is like something tangible, like they could actually like physically do today? I would say write out all of your credit card balances Mm -hmm. and write out all the limits and then look at, okay, what equals 30% of this limit? So if I have credit, a credit card of $2,000 and right now I have 1100 charged on it. The ideal, so write three columns, right? Three columns, put balance, limit, target utilization. Mm -hmm. Target utilization is going to be 30% times whatever your limit is. So on a $2,000 card, your target utilization is $600. Mm. If you have $1,100 charged on that card, your goal is to pay it down to get to that $600. So then now you're at that 30% where it starts to positively impact your credit score. So I would say list out all of your debts and start chipping away at them like that. And then after you start, after you get them down, I would say start with the smallest one first, because you might have one of like, oh, I just need to pay like $200 to get this down. Like, okay, let's do this. Let's get this down to 30% onto the next one. So start with the smallest amount with that. And then once we get them down to 30%, let's then focus on, okay, let's start paying off the smallest debt now. Let's pay off the next smallest debt. Let's pay off the next smallest debt. So create a plan by looking at like what cards, what you need to do with those cards. But also I would say when it comes to like your financial picture, Understand if credit is what you should be focusing on right now, because a lot of people focus on credit because it's our adult GPA. Like how else do we know if we're doing right with money, if we like mm-hmm. don't have a solid credit score, but sometimes there are other things that are more important, especially if you're not going to be making a credit-based decision. Credit might not be a factor if you own your car, own your home, and like don't plan to make any major buying decisions in the near future. Maybe you should be focused on building your savings instead so that you can maintain those things. I would say credit, you focus on credit when you're trying to buy something or when you're preparing to buy something. But otherwise, do we, should we focus on investing? Like, okay, I have savings, my credit's good, but what does my future look like? Am I growing my money and allowing it to work for me? Or do I need to focus on a side hustle and finding another way to significantly increase my income? Or do I just need to focus on living within a budget and creating some boundaries around my money? Like, what should I be focusing on now to get me to the next step? And then what should my next step be? And then like, how do I build on those steps? Mm, okay. Cameron, we got homework. We've got homework. <laughs> Can we please come back here, please? So because much. I have like so much more to ask. Please come back. So much. I'm, gotta I mean, I'm going to DM. Too. So be, be, um, be waiting for my DM that says, please, can we work together? <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to respond, but just know that I will DM that. I, you know, um, and I don't even, I, how I work with clients now, I don't do one-on-ones anymore because, um, I felt it was incredibly selfish for me to do one-on-ones because I wasn't able to impact as many people as I wanted to. And so we do have a boot camp that we offer at MyFab Finance. It's closed for this year, but we will be offering it again in the top of the new year. And that like that, I'm in the trenches with the people in the boot camp. It's like a one-to-many model. So that's the close, best way to work with me. But I know a lot of awesome people that I um, recommend people to who do work with individuals one-on-one. So, yeah, I think I'm at a point where I'm like, okay, like now what, like, how do we invest? Like, and I just don't know the next steps. So yeah, I think sometimes it's just all personal. And I think that, you know, and, and like, I know we've been talking a lot, but I would also say, understand that like, one person is not going to play the entire position of your financial team. Mm. So like, you had a business manager, your business manager might be good at negotiating contracts and like business related things, but maybe their strength is not investing. And that's where it comes into getting a financial advisor or someone who, or um, someone who is, can advise on investments and help you plan for your future or a certified financial professional, a CFP or someone like that, who they solely focus on it. They don't negotiate, but they help you manage your money and help you grow your money. Um, or maybe you need an accountant or someone to help you cha- manage your tax liability. So like my financial team is comprised of, I have a manager. I have a financial advisor and I have an accountant and I'm a financial educator guys. And I have those people. So that goes to say like, sometimes it's unrealistic to expect one person to play all these positions. And as you get to those bridges, bring in different people who are qualified in those areas and do those things well, because you want someone who do, does those things. Well, mm-hmm. I, I don't, my manager, my agent should not do my taxes. Like mm-hmm. you're good at getting me more money. 
but now let's right. get this other person <laughs> to manage how we are utilizing that money and how much we have to pay in taxes and like our cash flow for the business. So just giving people permission to have multiple people and not feeling like one person has to be there and all be all. As yeah. they say, teamwork makes the dream work, right? Like you and I, Roxanne. Peanut butter and jelly. <laughs> Can I be the jelly and sleep? Okay, fine. I'll be the peanut butter sticky and crunchy. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tanya. I am so much food for thought um and so people can find you on obviously go to your instagram my fab my fab finance that is correct yeah my fab finance really active over there i do um, finance fridays every friday where i get on and ask questions we also have our fab family which is our family that we created to um, support people who are on a financial journey and they feel like they can't talk to other people about it they're just kind of like hey like I don't know, like no one else is focused on this. How do I talk to other people who are focused on that? So that is, um, we have our fab family. That is our first link in our Instagram bio for my fab finance to make it easy for people to find. Cause you don't remember URLs. Um, <laughs> and, um, my personal, um, Tanya T O N Y A dot Rapley, because I've been teaching financial education since 2013, which is crazy. We're going on nine years. Um, and so with that, um, I have a, my personal brand. I talk about like the businesses I own and how I operate through businesses and am a mom. And this year was my first million dollar year as an entrepreneur. So what was the work that it took to go into that and my team and behind the scenes. So if anyone's ever interested in that stuff, mm, they can are. follow me at tanya.rapley. Yes. yes, we like We're your biggest fans now. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, is that you? Is that you, Roxy? <laughs> we'll both be here and be like, hey. <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much, guys. And please don't forget to rate, subscribe, and comment. Um, We are Women on Top Official on Instagram. And Women on Top Podcast on Facebook. And we have Women on Top Group on Clubhouse, too. And like Timon said, don't forget to rate, rate, subscribe, subscribe, and and comment. I am Tamon Sursock. And I am Roxy Manning. And we are Women. On uh, make it a money top. <laughs> Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24.